I want to encourage you this morning as we get into the word, and you can begin turning to Acts chapter 15, as we get into the word this morning that, that God, by his spirit, I don't know how he does it, but by his spirit and by his power, he promises that when we read his word and expose ourselves to it, that he renews our heart and he renews our mind and he refreshes us and he gives light to our eyes and joy to our heart and he restores us and rejuvenates us through the teaching of his word, through the study of his word. And so um, this is just a continuation of what he's already been doing this morning in your life. And I, wanna, I just want to encourage you that you are loved by God and, uh, and his purposes are advancing in your life. And all he asks is just a surrendered heart, that's all. And so I'm asking as you um, uh, are exposed to the teaching of the word this morning, as, as we share, as we learn together, that your heart would just be open, that you just say, Lord, I want whatever you want. Thank you for loving me. Thank you that you haven't given up on me. Even if, uh, like Mark was saying, you've had trouble with the kids or whatever or been impatient, I, I think I've had that happen a few times in my life, uh, that God hasn't forsaken you and God hasn't given up. He's still on the throne and he's made a promise that what he started in your life, he's going to bring to completion. It's one of the wonderful promises of the word of God. Well, um, let's take a look at Acts chapter 15. We're going to be considering the topic of sola fide, which means by faith alone, and, uh, and this council that took place in Jerusalem to deal with this issue of just how is one truly saved. Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you were circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the brothers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. And when they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The word of the prophets are in agreement with this. As it is written, after this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the remnant of men may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things that have been known for ages. 
This is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Bersabbas, and Silas, two men who were leaders among the brothers. With them, they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. The men were sent off and went down to Antioch where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the brothers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the brothers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for this uh, passage of scripture this morning, and it's an absolute privilege and delight, Lord, knowing that your word says that when it goes out, when it's distributed, when it's shared, when it's proclaimed, it will not come back empty, but it will accomplish the purpose for which you're sending it. And Lord, we know this is a divine appointment that we're having this morning. And we know that the, the people that you want here are here. The message that you wanted them to hear is the passage of scripture we happen to be going through this morning. And you're drawing all of these things together, God, for your divine and eternal purposes. And so, Lord, it's a, it's a privilege to step into this divine appointment that you have for us this morning. God, may you find in us hearts that are eager to apply what we learn and to rejoice in what you speak. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. As I was thinking about this whole issue of sola fide, by faith alone, I, I couldn't help but remember a story that I'd heard many years ago about a little boy that visited uh, Washington, D.C. with his family. He was just a little toddler, like five years old. And uh, so he gets to Washington, D.C. His parents have already shown him all the pictures and they've seen articles on Washington, what to look for, what to expect. And so this little boy is all geared up. And he gets to the Washington Monument, which happens to be like one of his favorite things uh, that he'd seen previously in the pictures that his parents had shown him. So he gets to the Washington Monument and he's just amazed by it, just amazed and he just stands there and he, he notices that there's a guard over uh, nearby. And so he goes up to the guard and he says to the guard, I'd like to buy that. And the guard, uh, you know, is somewhat amused by this little boy wanting to purchase the, the Washington Monument. And so, uh, so he asked the boy, well, how much money do you have? And the boy says, I've got 25 cents. And he pulled it out right there and said, it's a quarter right here, ready to go. And, uh, and the guard said, well, um, it's going to take a lot more than that to buy the Washington Monument. And so the boy said, 
I thought you might say that. And so I have nine more cents. And so he pulled out 34 cents altogether and tried to give it to the guard. And the guard said, you know, there, there, there are several things that you need to know. First of all, 34 cents won't buy the Washington Monument. In fact, $34 million won't buy the Washington Monument. The second thing that you need to know is that the Washington Monument is not for sale. And the third thing that you need to know is that if you're an American citizen, it already belongs to you. And in essence, that's a message of salvation by faith alone. You don't have enough money to buy it in the first place. In the second place, it's not for sale. And in the third place, if you've received Christ as your savior, it's already yours, the salvation by faith alone. Now, it's interesting because this whole text really is dealing with this issue of sola fide. It's a Latin term that was used by the reformers when they were trying to establish that a person comes into the kingdom of God and is, and is justified only simply by believing in the message, the life-giving message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing added to it. But in this text, we find that certain men are trying to add something to it that people have to do in order to achieve salvation. And uh, it's often been called uh, uh, faith plus something, faith plus some work that needs to be done, faith plus works. And it's actually one way that people view the, the Christian life and salvation. They say that you need faith plus some other additive to your Christian life in order to be truly saved. Now, you, you'll be saved if you're if you believe in Christ, but you aren't completed. There's something missing in your life uh, that needs to happen in order for you to be saved. And I'm gonna share some of them with you that I've heard over the years. And all of them here on this island, these aren't in faraway places, this is right here. One of them is that you have to be saved and baptized. If you're not baptized, you're not saved because baptism saves. The second one is you have to worship on a certain day of the week, on the Sabbath. And I've been told for years that I'm sending people to hell on Sunday morning by having a Sunday morning service. And so we started a Saturday night service. And, uh, and at, least, at, least some of the, at least some of the people are gonna make it. I'm just kind of, you know, throwing my dice out there and hoping, you know, we get a few up in the kingdom of God. Another is that you have to belong to a particular denomination. That if you don't belong to this particular church or this particular denomination within the larger grouping of, of Christian churches, that you can't be saved. You have to be in that church to be saved. Uh, another one is that you have to read the King James Bible only. There are people that are absolutely militant about the King James Bible. I love the King James Bible. I think it's an incredible translation. Um, but there are people that actually believe that the Bible was inspired and given to the disciples in the King James language, in English. And, uh, and I'm serious, they're absolutely convinced that, that if it was good enough for Paul, it's good enough for me, you know, that kind of, uh, of a statement. And, uh, but that means when I talk to people about the King James only, um, I, I say, well, do you know that that means that only English-speaking people in the world can be saved? That means that, that nobody from Asia, nobody from South America, nobody from uh, African nations can be saved because they can't ever have it translated in the King James English unless they learn English first. And uh, so it, it's interesting, but there are a lot of people that are so militant about this that it, it, it's like salvation by faith plus the King James Bible. Another one is that you have to have a certain type of theology, and there, and there are some people that are so, uh, so concerned about covenant or reformed theology, which I won't go into detail about, but, but they believe it's gotta be faith plus you have to be you know, reformed in your theology. Another one uh, from the Pentecostal side of things is that you have to uh, have faith in Christ plus be filled with the Holy Spirit as evidenced by speaking in tongues. So you can't just be a Christian and believe and rejoice over that because somebody's gonna come up and ask you, but have you evidenced salvation by speaking in tongues? So it's salvation plus something else. 
And the last one I'll mention, and there's certainly others, but the last one I'll mention this morning is salvation plus you need to keep the Old Testament law. All 613 commandments found in the Old Testament covenant. So if a person believes salvation plus anything else, they have fallen into the trap of what these men are uh, trying to convince these new Gentile converts that they have to adapt, the Old Testament law. Now, I know a lot of you are thinking, this, what is this in the world does this have to do with me? I'm, I don't even know the 613 laws. I don't know much about the Old Testament. And you're thinking, how can this message possibly apply to me? I'll, I'll tell you. Because Satan ultimately is behind everything that's happening in chapter 15 that's not of God. All this disruption, this disunity, this disputing, this arguing, these people that try to attach some other work that needs to be uh, uh, added to simple faith in Christ, it's being generated from behind the scenes by the enemy of our souls. And Satan is looking for a way to disqualify a believer from experiencing the joy of salvation by faith alone. And so if he can't kill the Messiah, if he can't eliminate the church, if he can't wipe out the apostles, then he will even come into the church through false teachers who say faith plus something else. Now, you're thinking again, well, I don't even, I'm not exposed to that. I I believe you are, and I'll tell you how, because it happens to me too. Satan will, um, he will, he will whisper these lies to me that, Bob, I know you believe and I know you're trying to serve the Lord and everything, but you aren't up to par in this area in your life or you failed over here or you're not good enough or you have made countless commitments that you would stop doing that behavior or start doing that behavior and you have failed. And, and you, know, you know that kind of crumbling feeling that you have inside when Satan is talking to you like that and you just feel like, I don't, I don't even deserve to go to church. I don't deserve to be in the kingdom of God. I don't deserve to have relationship with God. I'm gonna have to somehow get better at this so I can kind of work myself into a place where I'm feeling like I've, I'm in the groove with God. Are you, are you following me? That, my friends, is faith plus something. And it's the trap of the enemy for believers to think that they, by their performance or lack of performance have disqualified themselves or somehow substandard Christians, that is a lie of the enemy. The Bible teaches that you are saved and justified, which means that you're, you're forgiven of all your sins, but your, your credit is cleaned as well. Your, your, your credit rating is immaculate, performed by God. That's what justified means. Forgiven, justified. God has done all of that, and you, regardless of your performance, have a standing before God where God looks at you with love and with joy and with a a knowledge that he is seeing you through the finished work of Christ on the cross. And that is the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why it's such good news. For every one of you here, just think to yourself, what I'm saying to you, I I want you to let it sink in that right now, regardless of your performance this last week, regardless of how you were with your spouse or your kids or at work or anything else, the Bible says that if you have truly put your faith in the finished work of Christ, you are forgiven and you are justified before God. Now, it doesn't mean that God is done with you, but it means that you don't have anything before God that you need to be ashamed of because you have a right standing before God. Now, God is gonna work on those areas in your life. That's what what, what the Bible calls sanctification. And God is gonna work that into your life, but your standing before God is established on that simple commitment of belief and faith in Jesus Christ. And that is good news, at least it is to me. 
Now, there's another way you can approach this whole issue of faith. It's faith equals justification regardless of how you live. It's, it's, uh, Paul refers to that as an abuse of the grace of God. And there are some people that believe this. It's just like, I prayed 25 years ago. Uh, I put my hand on the television screen on TBN and I received Jesus Christ as my savior. Now, yeah, I'm living with my girlfriend. Yeah, I'm sinning. Yeah, I, I don't even read my Bible. Yeah, I have no interest in the things of God. But praise God, when that day comes, I'm gonna be in heaven. Now, the Bible doesn't teach that that's an accurate doctrine. In fact, in uh, James 2, uh, verse 20, James says straight up, he says, without deeds, faith is useless. So he's not contradicting sola fide, but what he's saying is that if a person's life doesn't begin to reflect the transformation that comes when they believe in God and are justified, then something is wrong with the, the relationship that they have with the Lord or their understanding of the kingdom of God. Uh, John in 1 John puts it this way in, in chapter 3, verse 9. He says, no one who is born of God will continue to sin. It means as a life pattern to sin. It doesn't mean that they'll never sin. It just means as a life pattern, they won't continue to live a lifestyle of rebellious, willful sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. And so John's message in this is that if someone... Uh, is truly born again, they're not gonna simply say, hey, I'm justified, it doesn't matter how I live. The Bible doesn't actually teach that. And so we have to be careful that though we believe in justification by faith, it doesn't give us uh, license to sin and uh, live an ungodly life and expect that that is the true Christian life. Now, the third way that I'd like to, uh, to relate to you, which I believe is the biblical model, is that faith by itself, in and of itself, with nothing added, justifies us before God. And, and because of that, we have a right standing with God and we're seated uh, at the right hand of God in the heavenly places with Christ, in Jesus Christ. So that's a done deal. But what the reformers referred to as sola fide uh, always evidenced itself with a transformed, changed life. So this is how it works out. I believe, I confess, I acknowledge that it's only by the finished work of Christ that I can be forgiven and justified and now have a right standing with God apart from my works, good or bad. But now that that event has occurred, what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse one is now, in view of God's mercy, because you're so blown away by this incredible gift that it already belongs to you, if I can use that, that term, the little boy and the Washington Monument, it already belongs to you now in the joy that wells up in your heart as a result of that, offer yourselves to God as living sacrifices. And so our lives become an overflow. Our understanding of justification by faith alone become an overflow of that gratitude and we end up serving and loving God and wanting to spend time with him and wanting to be more like him. But the, but the motivation is just complete gratitude versus I've got to do this if I'm going to feel good as a Christian. I've got to do this if I'm going to ramp up to what God's expectations are. Do you see the difference? So not faith plus all these works, faith by itself that produces this kind of natural overflow of the fruit of a man or woman's life who has been truly transformed by the grace of God. And again, John speaking in 1 John chapter 2, he says, we know that we have come to know him, know Christ, if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys the word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. 
Whoever claims to live in Christ must walk as Jesus did. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying the truly justified man or woman who understands that it's by faith alone is going to begin to look like Jesus, going to begin to have the priorities of Jesus, going to begin to have the character qualities and and the the passions of Jesus. And, And it should be evident. In fact, Paul, when he was talking to Timothy, his young disciple, he says to him, he says, Timothy, in the church, let your progress in your Christian life be evident to all. Now, Paul certainly wasn't trying to tell Timothy, Timothy, you know, you need to ramp up on the works because I'm not sure you're quite in the kingdom. No, he wasn't saying that at all. But he said, Timothy, it should be so obvious to people because you are a man after God's heart because of the justified condition you have. The overflowing fruit in your life should be so apparent that people even that are friends of yours should week by week by week notice the transformation taking place in your life. Timothy, in essence, he's saying, You should look more like Jesus every week, every day, as a result of spending time with the Lord. Well, in verse 1, we find out that uh, that these particular men that are referred to in the scriptures as Judaizers, those that came from the Jewish tradition, became believers, but were trying to cling to two worlds, the Old Testament law and the, uh, and the, the message of faith and justification by faith alone Uh, that's the gift of God. And so they were trying to hold on one foot in this world and one foot in that world and try to pull these two things together. And uh, and they were referred to as Judaizers as a result. They were teaching that these Gentile Christians who have no background in the Old Testament or any background in the lifestyle of an Israelite had to become circumcised. In other words, an initiation rite into the Jewish lifestyle. In other words, a Gentile had to become a Jew and then could step into the kingdom of God. They couldn't just step into the kingdom of God directly. They had to come through the Jewish tradition of circumcision. Now, I want to point out just a couple of things about these Judaizers. Number one is that I believe that these men were sincere in their convictions and belief. There's not a shadow of doubt in my mind that these men intended good. The second thing that I want to point out is that these men were basing their convictions on selected Old Testament passages. So they were actually able to point to Old Testament passages, excluding other Old Testament passages. They were kind of cherry picking. But you can choose certain Old Testament passages and come up with a theology that would suggest that the New Testament Christian must live by the Old Testament commandments. And so they were actually quoting scripture. The third thing is that these men acted as representatives without the authority of the church in Jerusalem. And on all three counts, these men were wrong. And Paul addresses it actually in Romans chapter uh, 10. He says, I can testify about these men, the Judaizers, that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. So it's a wonderful thing to be zealous. It's a wonderful thing to be passionate if it's based on the truth. And Paul is saying that their zeal was not based on truth. He goes on to say that since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. What righteousness is he talking about? He's talking about righteousness by faith alone in Jesus Christ. They sought to establish their own faith plus the Old Testament law. And then he says something shocking. He says, Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. It's the end of the law. Now, these men get up and they share this and they're very adamant about it. They're in in Antioch. This is a Gentile quarter. This is an area that uh, was predominantly Gentile. There were Jews there. 
but uh, this was where Paul and Barnabas were preaching. These guys came all the way from Jerusalem to try to correct this issue that they were so concerned about because Peter had already been to Jerusalem telling them about Cornelius coming to Christ and they felt like it was up to them without the permission of the leaders in Jerusalem to go down to Antioch and get this little uh, new fledgling church all straightened out. So they went down to try to straighten the church out and this brought, the Bible says in verse two, Paul and Barnabas into sharp debate with these brothers. And um, Paul, by the way, is, is uh, he's not a guy to mince words. You know, if you read some of, his, some of his epistles, he just, he calls people all kinds of things. I mean, he just gets right on it and lays it out flat, straight, truth, uh, and it's, uh, it's piercing. And he says to the, in the book of Galatians, uh, chapter one, verse six, he says to the church, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. That's what he calls these Judaizers, the person who says faith plus something else. He says, it's, it's, not, it's not my gospel. He says, it's not the gospel of the Bible. It's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's another gospel. It's a different, not of the same kind, but of a wholly different kind of message. And he says, it's no gospel at all. Evidently, because it's, it's not good news if you have to have faith plus something else. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one that we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. And he says, yes, let him be eternally condemned. I mean, he's, he's like pronouncing a curse on these guys. That's not very nice pastorly behavior. I mean, can you imagine me saying that? I mean, you know, to people in the community, let you be eternally condemned for what you're, well, that'd be, that'd, that'd be in the paper, you know, that would be bad. But Paul, Paul doesn't pull any punches. Why is he fighting so desperately for this? Because this doctrine of salvation by faith alone is so fundamental, so essential, that if, if it is damaged, if, it, it's, if it's uh, modified in any way, it completely corrupts the entire Christian life. Because it's a gift of God, the Bible says. It's a gift of God, not by work, so that no one can boast. Now, the bad part about this message is that we can't boast about it. We can't go around and say, yeah, I've been getting better. I'm improving. I've, been, I've got all kinds of checklists and look at how much I've improved this year. Honey, bring the kids over. Everybody, come and look at this. I just see how I've improved. You know, we can't take any glory in it. And that's the bad news. The good news is that we're free. The good news is that it's finished. The good news is that it's done. The good news is that it doesn't require us to achieve anything to, to be at rest in it and to enjoy the benefits of it. And so what we give up is so small in comparison to the benefit of receiving this very wonderful message. Well, as it turns out, they, they had this disagreement, this dispute going on in Antioch and, uh, and they couldn't resolve it. And so the leaders in Antioch wisely sent Paul and Barnabas with all of these guys that came down from Jerusalem and said, go back to those guys in Jerusalem, to the leaders of the church, to James and the other apostles, and get this thing figured out and come back and tell us, tell us who's right in this debate. And so they appointed uh, uh, Paul and Barnabas to work this question out. Now, I just want to point out something that I think is really interesting here. Number one is that the church in Antioch didn't ignore the conflicting doctrine they didn't ignore it. They didn't leave it up to the conscience of each believer and say, hey, whatever, you know, as long as we all are in love with God, you know, it doesn't really matter what you believe. How many times have you guys heard this? It's not so important what we believe as long as we all love God, you know? 
Um, another thing that I want to point out is that they didn't start another denomination. You know, we don't have the, the, the second church of the early church happening down the street from, in Antioch or in Jerusalem. What does this mean? It means that this church in the early stages of its infancy, it was about 25 years old now, was not willing to let itself be divided over important, essential biblical doctrine. It said, we must resolve this. We can't accept, you know, five different doctrines on this. This has to be resolved. It's so fundamental to the Christian life that if we don't get this figured out, nothing is going to be right. And, and here's what I like about that. In an age where I hear the talk of unity all the time, I'm all for unity, but the unity that we have comes from our single-mindedness in the teaching of the Bible. And I run into it all the time. Everybody wants to be unified. It's like, oh, Bob, you're, you know, you're so, you're so into the Bible. What is it about you? Why do you always have to be quoting scripture? And why, does, why do you, every time we have a meeting, why is it always you saying, can, we, can you show me that in the Bible? Or, you know, just give it a rest already, Hallman, you know? And I'm like, gee, sorry. I, I'm a Christian. I'm a pastor. I, I, I thought the Bible was, I thought this was the truth. I thought this is what we were supposed to base the ministry of the church on. I'm really sorry, you know. What I like about what these guys did is that they didn't settle for anything less than a conclusive, definitive answer on this issue. And I share that with you because the Apostle Paul thought it was worth fighting for. The Reformers and the Reformation thought it was worth fighting for. The saints throughout church history thought it was worth fighting for. And it's still worth fighting for. We need to fight for the, the truth of sola fide, by faith alone, because we are constantly going to be challenged by people and even by the enemy of our souls to say that something else needs to be added in addition. Now, as a pastor, I want to add all kinds of things to that list. I want to say, yeah, you have to be saved by faith and, you know, you got to do this and that and the other thing. And, and I can't even tell you why that temptation is there. But I know it's because I want you guys to be walking with the Lord. I want, you to, I want you to evidence, I want you to experience the joy, the overflow, the abundance of what God has planned for you. So my heart is to say, yes, believe in Jesus and now go live the life. But that's not what the Bible actually teaches. The Bible says, yes, believe in Jesus and it's finished. And now, as a result of the overflowing gratitude of your heart that you've been justified for something that you didn't have enough money for that's not for sale and already belongs to you, now out of the overflow, do whatever the Spirit of God leads you to do. Just out of the overflow, live in a way that honors the Lord. Well, these men were sent to go and address this issue of, of, um, of this doctrine. And the church sent them along the way. In verse 3 and 4, we're told that uh, they shared how the Gentiles had been converted and they made all the brothers along the way in all these various cities so glad to hear this incredible message of life that was taking place. And they finally arrived in Jerusalem and they were welcomed by the church and they reported to the church everything that God had done through them. So it was just a joyous reporting. It was the first report that Paul and Barnabas had brought from Antioch to the church in Jerusalem. And the church was glad to hear uh, the message. However... In the days that followed, they met and they convened a council of the apostles and the elders and the teachers and the whole church in Jerusalem to discuss this question of vital importance. And this is the question. Are Christians saved by faith alone or by faith plus something else, in this case, the following of the Ten Commandments or the Old Testament law? So 
They gave those that had stirred up this problem in the first place, first crack at presenting their case. And we find that in verses five through six. The believing Pharisees, uh, men who had one time been Pharisees like Paul had been, but had become Messianic Jews, those that had received Christ as their savior, they stood up and they said that the Gentiles must be circumcised. Now, this circumcision was, again, anytime you say that they must be circumcised in order to be saved or be brought into the family of God, uh, you're, you're saying grace plus something else. And they also said that the Gentiles must obey the law of Moses. And uh, what they, in essence, were saying is that in order to enter into this covenant family of God, you have to first become a Jew and then you can become a Christian. So it's not like, a Christian, that one step of faith in Christ alone, it's two steps now. And it's always the same thing. Anytime you add anything else, it's always one step and another step. You gotta have at least two. You, you gotta uh, believe this certain way or you've gotta have this certain doctrine or you gotta speak in tongues or you have to do something. It's faith plus something else. And so they're presenting their case that they have to step into the Jewish world first and then step into the converted Messianic Jewish world in order to come into Christ. Now, after they make their case, and I'm sure they made it as persuasively as they could, they, they, these guys are bright guys, they made it persuasively, and I'm, I'm assuming they used Old Testament scriptures. After they had done that, Peter got up in verse seven, and he appealed to them, and he used five things to evidence that God had said no. These people don't need to step into the Jewish world and then into the Christian world. These people can step immediately from a Gentile pagan world directly into the Christian life. And he uses five things to prove it. The first is he appealed to the divine calling that God had given him to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And he's really reviewing with them because he had already spoken in Acts chapter 11 verses one through three with the church in Jerusalem because he had to bring back a report about this salvation of Cornelius who was a Gentile and his entire household and uh, the remarkable things that God had done. So Peter again reminded the council in Jerusalem he said, you know, we've kind of been over this, guys, already once before, but I don't mind repeating myself. You guys remember how God called me, how the sheet up and down, up and down, up and down, three times, indicating, filled with unclean animals, clean and unclean, that, that nothing is unclean that God calls clean. And then, of course, Cornelius' servants pound on the door, and uh, the Holy Spirit says, go down with them. He goes with them. He's preaching the gospel in Cornelius' house, and Cornelius has just packed the place with unclean Gentile dog, you know, unbelieving pagans, you know. And as he's preaching, they receive the truth. And we'll talk about the second thing that he appealed to because on the heels of his own calling, he appeals to the indwelling, authenticating work of the Holy Spirit in these Gentiles. And he says, I was preaching the gospel. He's telling you, this is in Acts 11, chapter one, verse uh, one and three. And he says, I was preaching the gospel and I wasn't even done. I didn't even give an altar call. I mean, I didn't even lead anyone in the sinner's prayer. And the Holy Spirit just fell on the place and they all started speaking in tongues. And he said, who was I? Who was I to step in the way of God and say, no, they can't be Christians because they haven't followed certain other additional steps? Who was I to do that? So he said, we baptized them on the spot and welcomed them into the family of God. And when he came back, this was years earlier. When he came back to the church in Jerusalem and reported this, they said, well, obviously, God has decided to allow the Gentiles to come into the kingdom of God, and they rejoiced. But now it's being revisited again. 
And by the way, it's going to be revisited so many times throughout human history. Um, and we have to fight for it even today. So Peter gets up and he shares these things. And he also says that uh, he appealed to their identical purification by faith. And Paul um, uh, basically says the very same thing. But these Judaizers were saying that the Gentiles were unclean. And in order to be clean, they first had to follow the, the cleansing rituals of the Judaic uh, law, of the law of Moses. And, and then they could step in. Again, it's another step, an additional step. And Peter says, no. And Paul backs it up in Romans 3 when he says, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. And he says rhetorically, is God the God of the Jews only? Isn't he the God of the Gentiles? And he says, yes, he's the God of the Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that very same faith. The, third, the fourth thing that he appeals to is the Jews' own failure to keep the law. And this is like, this is like a poke in the eye. <laughs> this is a, there's a lot of humor in the Bible. And this is one of those times where he just goes, eh, you know, this is probably, eh, this is two fingers in the eyes. Because he basically tells the Jews, he says, my brothers, honestly, do you really want to saddle these Gentile believers with the yoke of bondage that this law has been to us? We have never been able to succeed in keeping it. In the whole history of Judaism and in our Israelite history, we have, it's nothing but one long string of failures of us doing what God said to do when it came to keeping the law. Do you really want to yoke onto them, put this burden on them that we ourselves and even our forefathers couldn't handle? And that was like, ouch, you know, I, uh, suddenly all these guys are like, oh, he's kind of got a point, you know, uh, talking to each other. And then the fifth thing that he says is that the doctrine of salvation is by grace. It's got to be by grace. Now, mercy and grace are different. Mercy means not getting what you do deserve. And that's when I'm disciplining my boys, they, mercy, mercy. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But that's, that would be an appropriate time for them to cry mercy. Um, <laughs> Now, grace is different. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not being sent to hell for your sin. Grace is being given life, peace, joy, uh, the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, the fellowship of the saints, all the precious promises in the Word of God, the promise of eternal life, an inheritance in the saints in Christ, and an eternal future that's just going to blow our minds. That's grace. And Peter says, that we enter into this by grace. You see, we want to somehow work our way. These Judaizers wanted them to work their way into all these blessings. And he says, Peter's like, are you serious? Are you, do you think you're going to buy the, the Washington Monument for 34 cents? It's not going to happen. If you've believed in Christ, it's already yours, this incredible grace of God. Now, I want to make a point here about this law because it seems to be kind of odd. Why would God give us a law that he knew we couldn't keep? Have you ever wondered that? Why is the Old Testament law so detailed? Why does it tell us all these things that they're supposed to do and not do and who they can marry and who they can't marry and what they can eat and what they can wear and what they can plant and on and on the list goes. It's just, it's burdensome. Why did God do it? Well, the scripture tells us there are three reasons. Number one, to show us God's holiness and his righteous standard. So in my mind, I'm thinking, and we hear this all the time from people that you know that aren't believers, it's like, hey, I'm doing better than other people. You know, I'm, the, the, the bar is here and they're, you know, they can jump over it and they think, jumped over that? Standard of God? I'm in, you know? And suddenly the law comes out and the bar is like the top of the tent 
And, you know, we're, we're kind of peeking at it and thinking, I can't jump like that. I can't get that high. And that's one of the major purposes of the law is to show us in our arrogance and our pride how far away and high the standard is of God that we would have to jump just how expensive salvation is if we were to try to jump over it. The second reason is to show how sinful we are. Because every time, you know, you look at the Ten Commandments, uh, or any of the commandments for that matter, they were broken over and over and over by all of us here. We've all broken them, maybe not all of them, but we've broken many of those commandments and broken them repeatedly. And God says, you are sinners. And we're like, that's not very, you know, nice. Why would you call us something mean and nasty like that? Well, because he's identifying that our true condition so that we will come to our senses, which leads us to the third reason for the law, and that's to drive us to Christ. It's not even to lead us to Christ. It's like, a, it's like a whip from behind us saying, yeah, yeah, you know, get in there, little doggies. You know, it's like trying to guide us into the, into the narrow path. That's what the law does. I should work on that. that didn't, uh, some, so much of this just comes spontaneously, and I, I can't be completely held responsible for what I say up here. So that's the purpose of the law. It was to help us come to the point where, number one, we realized the, the standard was too high. Secondly, how sinful we were. And thirdly, that it was driving us toward the conclusion that we had to have some other means of experiencing salvation than anything we could offer because we are literally bankrupt and without the capacity to save ourselves. Well, Paul and Barnabas chime in in verse 12 through 21 and they uh, begin to describe uh, the confirming miracles of God. Now, one of the things that you need to know is that whenever God authenticated his ministry through Jesus Christ, for instance, he authenticated it with miracles of healing, raising the dead, opening blind eyes, all these things, uh, raising uh, you know, the lame and uh, helping them walk again. Those were authenticating miracles that the Bible said would accompany those who are doing God's work. And so Jesus had these authenticating miracles. The apostles, as they went from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and preached the gospel for the first 25 years of the church, they were authenticated by these miracles as well. And Paul and Barnabas basically are saying, we too experienced the same thing as we were in Antioch. God was authenticating the ministry and his blessing and his work through all of these miraculous signs and wonders. Well, everyone has said their piece. Now, James, who is the head of the church at this point, by the way, not St. Peter. Uh, Peter said his, his fair share, but it's actually James who we know to be the leader in the church in Jerusalem. And by the way, this wasn't uh, the apostle James who had been martyred in Acts chapter 12, verse 2. He was the half-brother of Jesus. He was the brother of Jude. And he most likely came to a saving knowledge of Christ after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He also happens to be the author of the book of James uh, authored in his own name. The, the other thing that we know about James that, that makes him such a, a valid uh, leader and such an appropriate choice for the church is that they called him old camel knees. Now, I don't know if that's a compliment. You know, I mean, it's better than camel breath. I was thinking it could be worse, but they called him camel knees. Have you ever seen the knees of a camel? They're just all these bulgy, you know, this big calluses all over their knees because they kneel a lot. And that's why James was called Old Camel Knees because this man was so noted for prayer that his knees actually became so calloused that they called him Old Camel Knees. Wow, you know, what an incredible man. The other thing they called him was James the Just. And the reason they called him that was that he was so known for integrity and fairness 
that they gave him this moniker as well. He actually had quite a few different uh, nicknames, all related to his godliness. And he happened to be the chairman of this particular meeting that the church was having. Now James speaks up, and the first thing out of James' mouth is a reference to Scripture. He goes back to the Bible and he quotes Amos. And, and Amos, this quote that he gives, basically says that God is going to restore the house of Israel. How is he going to restore it? By bringing them to faith in Christ. And he's also, once that restoration begins, is now going to be uh, drawing in and including an ingathering of the Gentiles into that same faith. This is what Amos, the prophet, predicted many years before it happened. So James references appropriately the prophecies in the Old Testament that related to this now fulfilled event that's taking place in the church in Antioch. And I like what, uh, what John Stott says about this whole issue of uh, quoting scripture. He says, councils have no authority in the church unless it can be shown that their conclusions are in accord with scripture. In other words, nobody has any business making a decision in the church ever under any circumstances unless it's driven by this book. So whether it comes to the, the way the church is led or the way the church deals with problems or the way the church advances the cause of Christ or the way the church evangelizes or the mission of the church or the strategies of the church or anything else, this is our manual. This is the book that we are called to go to. And I've told you this often, but this is not my church. You are not my people. This is not even your church. And the people around you are not your people. This is God's church. This is God's ministry. This is God's prerogative to do what he's doing here. And my job and our job is to simply find out what the master says to do and then to put it into, into uh, effect by his grace and by his power. So uh, when we have meetings and when we uh, decide things at the church, the first thing that's always running through my mind is scripture. I'm thinking, okay, what does the Bible say about this issue? Not what does somebody at another place do? Or what is, you know, some other great leader, what do they do in the same situation? Nothing wrong with getting counsel. That's very appropriate. But the, but the first place that we must go, whether it's for the church or for our families or for our workplace or for our child rearing or for our parenting or for being a good spouse or for being an effective witness for the gospel of Jesus Christ, this book is our rule of living. And, you know, for me, I have to tell you, it's just like, I'm just like, this makes life so much easier when God has already told us how to handle the problem. It's kind of the difference between having a manual to fix a, a, a car, that you, an engine that you've never worked on, you're completely unfamiliar with, versus sitting and just trying over and over different things. Let's swap this out. Let's swap that out. Let's try this. Let's try that. And you, and you spend, you know, uh, enormous amounts of energy and money and frustration when if you simply have the manual, you get it right the first time. And in essence, that's what God has given us the opportunity to do with this book. Is, and that's what James did. Is he goes right to the book. And he said, what does the Bible have to say in this regard? The second thing that he appealed to is not to make it difficult for the Gentiles who were turning to God. He's just basically saying, guys, you know, don't put hurdles in front of people that are new believers. Don't, don't you know, mangle them over different things. Let God work in their life. You know, show them what the standard is, but then pray with them, encourage them, build them up, strengthen them in the faith, and then continue to help them understand the Bible and the word of God. He says, don't make it unnecessarily difficult. And then he says that he wants to write a letter to the Gentile converts telling them to abstain from four things. And I'm gonna go through this very, very briefly. One is to abstain from 
food sacrifice to idols, and in the original Greek, it's more in line, the, the translation would be uh, not sacrificing to idols. So really, we're talking about idolatry. The second thing is abstain from sexual immorality. Uh, porneia, where we get our word pornography from, from fornication, any kind of form of sex outside of, of marriage. And by the way, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 6 that we're to flee sexual immorality. In uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, we are to be sexually self-controlled and not take advantage of one another in that arena. And then Ephesians 5, 3, that we are to avoid even the hint of sexual impurity for this is improper for God's holy people. So first, no idolatry. Second, uh, refrain and abstain from sexual immorality. And the, uh, the, uh, the third is to abstain from consuming blood. Um, and, uh, and the fourth was to avoid eating meat strangled uh, uh, of strangled animals. Now, we're thinking, somebody came up to me last night and said, gee, it almost seems like he said don't circumcise, and then he says, now, instead, do my four things. Doesn't that kind of sound like that a little bit? But all of these four things were predating Mosaic law. The, the thing with the Judaizers is that they were real cheerleaders for Moses. They were okay with Jesus, but Moses was their hero. Jesus was a, an up-and-comer, but Moses was their hero. And so they wanted to have the, these new Gentiles step into the Judaic life first and then into the Christian life. And what these four things are that James says are four things that predate Mosaic law. These are universal laws. God doesn't want us worshiping idols. He doesn't want sexual immorality. And he says something very important about blood and, and both of these things related to the strangling of meat and to blood have to do with, uh, with pagan worship which these Gentiles came right out of. So let me tell you the three reasons that I believe that God uh, gave James these restrictions. Number one, because they conform to pre-Mosaic universal laws that God has. Don't worship anything but God. Don't live in, an, in a sexually immoral way. And, uh, and the second reason is to free the Gentiles from these pagan practices and saying, you need to know that as you're stepping into this, he doesn't say you have to do this to be saved. He says, now that you are saved, you should avoid these things because those things are not things that will benefit your life or the kingdom of God. The third thing that he says uh, uh, these four rules for is to prevent unnecessary offense to their Jewish brothers because these things were highly offensive. And, and this is basically what Paul um, says in Romans 14. You know, he says, we have freedom to do almost anything, really. But he says, not everything is beneficial. And there are certain freedoms that I might have uh, that you might be offended by. And, and there are certain things I just don't do in life that I don't find particularly offensive and the Bible doesn't even teach against, but I don't do it because, because it offends people. And, and, and if some of you saw me, you know, uh, drinking a beer or whatever, it, you'd be like, <laughs> you gotta find another church, you know? Pastor's an alcoholic, you know? But I don't, I don't drink not because the Bible prohibits it, but because it stumbles people. And, and, and even unbelievers have this sense that Christians shouldn't be men and women who drink and, uh, and are inebriated. And so Paul says, out of love for others, the Bible says, don't go in, into certain areas. Don't do these certain things. And he's telling the Gentiles, hey, Gentiles, we're confirming you are saved simply by faith. You don't need to add anything to it. You don't need to be circumcised. You don't need to jump into some new club to jump to the real club. He basically says, you're completely saved just by faith alone. Rest in that. But he says, there are four things that you can do that will really help you guys in your own walk with the Lord and will ease tension with these Judaizers. Because he wasn't trying to get the Judaizers and kick them out. They were trying to become unified. 
but he didn't do it at the expense of sola fide. Now, I have to tell you, I'm, I'm really impressed with all of these guys that come to this council because oftentimes when councils convene like this today, they leave and they split and they've got new organizations as a result. Not these guys. They began the, the, this meeting in conflict, but they ended in unity. And the reason they ended in unity is that the men who were Judaizers were convinced by the word of God that they were wrong. This is really important. And I, I am going to finish here in just a minute. This is really important for us because I want to ask you a very simple question. When you are confronted, either just through your own reading or through someone sharing with you, with the truth of Scripture, how do you respond when you're wrong? How do you really respond when you have suddenly realized, gee, I, I'm, not, I'm kind of standing on, a, on shaky, thin ice here. Now, a lot of people just get real, <laughs> I got scriptures I can quote too. You know, I mean, you can go through that whole thing, but the question is, how do you really respond when suddenly your, your spouse or your kids or someone in your life says, you know what, this isn't you're matching up with the, with the life that the Bible teaches. How do you respond? What I'm so impressed with these men is that these are, these are, are not novices. These are guys that are, are used to debating and arguing and winning. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, there was unity because someone along the way humbled themselves and it made me just cry out to God, Lord, make me a man like that, easily taught, easily uh, corrected, that responds quickly when I, make, when I blow it with my kids or my wife or someone in the church. Just, man, I want to be right on it and get it corrected. I don't want to have any pride that keeps me from the unity in the body of Christ. But again, I want to I emphasize the unity wasn't because they just brushed it aside. It was because they followed the scriptural mandate in working things through biblically. Now, verse 22 tells us that after this decision was made, they sent them uh, back uh, to, uh, to Antioch and they sent this letter to be read to the Gentile believers, verses 23 through 30, acknowledging the problem, which I love. They didn't sweep it under the rug. It was dealt with openly and transparently, as I believe problems even in church should be, even in the home should be. And they authenticated the messenger's authority to come in their name uh, with Judas and Silas. And they summarized their spirit-led judgment. And I love that. It seemed good to us. It says good to the Holy Spirit and good to us to have these certain things uh, be, be uh, um, encouraged in your life. Well, in verse 30 through 35, the, the Gentiles in Antioch were delighted. It says that they were glad and they were encouraged. Judas and Silas stayed on for some time encouraging, and it says um, also uh, strengthening them in their faith. And boy, that's what we need to be doing with each other in the church. Is like, I, I don't want, there's a part of me, I can't, I can't talk to all of you afterwards. I wish I could. I wish that uh, there was time, but I can't. But I don't need to do it because all of us together can perform that function of strengthening and encouraging each other in our faith. We talked about that last week. It means to prop up. It means to help someone while the roots get, get deep enough so that they themselves can stand and then soon have people tied onto them so that there can be this progressive uh, discipling process with all kinds of people and people being affected. But Silas and Judas did this, and they did a great job at it. And then it says Paul and Barnabas continued on for some time along with others, and they taught, which means that they systematically instructed in sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is, doctrine is not a bad word, by the way. I had a discussion with a brother this last week 
about a false, uh, some false teaching that he was being exposed to and was asking me about, and he was kind of defending it. And I, and I said, you know, it's so important, this issue, because he said, his, his word was, you know, I, like, can we just stop the doctrine thing and let's just talk about unity? And I'm like, we can't, there can't be unity without doctrine because doctrine is not a bad word. It's not some high and pious word. It simply means the authoritative collective work of the scriptures. And that's what it is. It's just the teaching of the Bible. And so we, we need to be on the same page with doctrine. So he's teaching them this doctrine so that they can fully comprehend this incredible gift that we've got in salvation by faith alone, that it's sola fide. And he evangelized, which means that he just kept preaching the gospel, preaching the gospel, preaching the gospel so that more people could come in. So I'm looking back on this text and I'm thinking a couple of things. One is that, is that the battle that, that Paul had, that Peter had, that Jesus had, that the reformers had, that the saints throughout church history have had, we're still going to have and we have it today. People are always going to want to add something. They're either going to impose it on us or Satan and his lies and whispers is going to tell us that we are insufficient and our work is insufficient and our performance is insufficient to stand justified before God. And I want to tell you the good news of the gospel is that if you have trusted in Christ and believed in the simple message of Christ dying on the cross for your sins and paying the penalty and you confessing your sin and your inability and coming to him, the Bible says that you are not only forgiven, the debt is taken away, but you are justified. The slate is clean and your credit before God is perfect because of Christ. You have the credit of Christ in your account. That is incredible news. That's unbelievable. I'm going to get excited and I'm going to, I don't want to get excited because then I'll start talking more. I'm done. That message must be clung to. We cannot let go of that message. The gospel is at stake. The second thing I want to say is that maybe there's someone here today that you've never experienced that justification simply by believing. You've always thought, I've got to clean my act up. I've got to try harder. I've got to get this right. You've never received Christ as your Savior. You've, you've lowered the bar so you could hop over it, and then you realized it was so high you could never attain to it. And the Bible says all the law is to drive you, to corral you toward the narrow gate of salvation in Christ. It's done. It's finished. All you have to do is accept it. And maybe that will be for you today. And there may be others that are believers here today that despite the fact that you know in your mind it's sola fide, by faith alone, you've been deluded and enticed by Satan himself, not intentionally, out of every good motive to somehow think that you're not sufficient for this Christian life and that you're not good enough and that you've just screwed up too many times. And for you, the message is life. And the message remains good news for unbeliever and for believer alike. And I want to encourage you to walk out of this tent today knowing that you are loved and cherished and valued and clean before almighty God and he's got a plan for you and he will never leave you or forsake you and he will finish the work in you. He will complete it. And all he wants is whatever response seems appropriate in light of this incredible gift that he's given you. That's all he asks. Respond. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. We thank you for your word. Bless it to our hearing. Change our lives and give us just an incredible, increasing joy as we understand sola fide, this great gift. We don't have enough to buy it. It's not for sale. But if we've received this gift, it already belongs to us. Thank you for this gift. 
As we're praying, I just want to ask very quickly, is there anyone here that doesn't know Jesus Christ, you've never received him as your Savior, and you'd like to enter into this new life, this life of forgiveness and justification before God, meaning that you are now reconciled, that you have a right relationship with God, and you're willing to admit, I've blown it. I can't jump high enough or far enough to make it happen. I've tried. I want the peace of God in my life. I want to be restored. I want relationship with God. If you want that, just raise your hand right where you are so I can see your hand. Is there anyone here today? You've never accepted Christ, but today you would like to. Is there anyone out there? Okay, I'm trusting that means that all of you know the Lord. If you don't and you're embarrassed or concerned about what might come next, just come and see me afterwards and we can pray with you. It's very simple. For the rest of you, is there anyone here, and I'm just going to have you raise your hands, is there anyone here who's been beaten up in your Christian life and you feel like you just, you're not good enough and you've been somehow thinking it's based on salvation plus your performance and Satan has ripped you off? I just want you to raise your hand because I want to pray for you. I see quite a few hands going up. A lot of us have been beaten up. We've just, we've, we've bit hook, line, and sinker this message that we're underperformers and we're disappointing to God. Father, I pray for those that are raising their hands and ask that you'd set them free today, Lord, with the truth. The truth will set you free. The truth of the gospel, the truth of salvation, the truth of justification by faith alone. They stand in your presence, blessed by you and a great joy to you. And now, Lord, let them find whatever their hand finds to do to your glory and to praise and to live it to to your pleasure. Out of the overflow of our lives, may praise and glory come to your name. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week.